That was my fault, not your fault, not the guys in the sound booth, my fault. So good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Grace. And uh, like Tracy just mentioned a minute ago, if it's your first time here, if you're a guest, welcome. Uh, we're super excited that you're able to be with us. If you are joining us on live stream right now, uh, welcome. We're glad to have you uh, joining us that way as well. Very, very thankful that you're able to be here. Uh, I do want to say if you're a guest, if it's your first time here, it's your first time back in a while, uh, you are catching us actually in the third part of the series that we've been in together. Uh, the series has been called Activated. And what we've been doing in this series is actually pretty simple. Uh, we, we, we said we're going to take the next several weeks to together as a church, as a community, uh, to really work through and journey through the incredible book of the Bible, the book of Acts. And so this whole series is really centered around, it's all about uh, the book of Acts. In fact, if you go to our website, some of you guys have been with us over the past couple of weeks, uh, there's actually a link on our website to a ton of different resources that we have created and we've put together for you. And so you're going to find an Acts reading plan. Uh, there's a reading plan where we're asking you that if you're in this series to join us in reading through the book of Acts uh, week by week. Um, there is different resources to get connected to as we look together at this incredible book the book of Acts. But of course, the question some of you might be asking, especially if, if you're new, is you might be asking the question, why Acts? Why are we studying the book of Acts? Why should you care? Why should you be part of this study? Why is that relevant to you? That's what you might be asking. And um, really, we take, we've taken the past couple of weeks, I hope, to explain that a little bit of why we think that the book of Acts is so important and so significant to every single person uh, in this room. But I think that maybe... Um, Maybe one of the best ways to quickly explain to you why we're studying the book of Acts is to actually begin with a quick story. So I actually came across this story a couple years ago, and I thought it was really interesting, actually a little bit funny. It actually comes from a guy named Charles Paul Kahn. He wrote this book that was called uh, Making It Happen. And in his book, he explained this experience he had. He talked about how uh, for a little while he was living in Atlanta, Georgia. And so after he had moved to Atlanta, he was opening the Yellow Pages to try to find uh, what, what kind of restaurants were around. And he noticed a listing for a restaurant that had a really unique name. And the name of the restaurant that he found was called the Church of God Grill. And so he saw that and he was like, that's weird. That's an interesting name. And he was just really curious, how in the world did they get that name? And so he decided that he was going to call him and find out. So he calls up this, this, this restaurant and says, um, you know, basically they, they answer and it's a Church of God Grill. And he asked them, he said, I just have to ask you, how did you get that really unique name of Church of God Grill? And so in his book, he recounts this event and here's what the man on the other side of the phone said to him. He said this, he said, well, we had a little church down here and we started selling chicken dinners after church on Sunday to help pay the bills. Well, people like the chicken and we did such a good business that eventually we cut back on church, on the church service. And after a while, we just closed the church altogether and we kept serving chicken dinners. So we kept the name that we started with and that was Church of God Grill. So basically what he said is we started with a church and we ended up serving chicken, but people liked the chicken, they didn't like the church. So we stopped doing the church and we kept doing the chicken. It's basically what he said. Now, it's kind of a funny story. You might be asking, what does that have to do with the book of Acts? And uh, here's, here's why I point that out, because I think all of us know that it's very possible for a church, and it's, let's be honest, it's very possible for anything, I think especially the church, to start as one thing, to start for one reason or for one purpose, and then eventually over time to subtly and eventually and gradually become about something totally different than what it originally was all about, what it originally set out to become. And that is possible. It's possible for any church to do that. So why are we studying the book of Acts? Here's why. 
Because in the past couple of weeks, we said that what the book of Acts is going to help us do is it's going to help us rediscover some things. It's going to help us get back to what is the original heart of Christianity? What is the, what is the original heart of the church? What is it supposed to be in its very origins? And what, is it, what has it become over time? And is it even close to what it originally was set out to become? In fact, in this series, we said that the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover three things. And the three things is this. We said it's gonna help us rediscover, first off, what is the message? What is the message, the original message of Christianity? What is the original message that Jesus gave to his first followers the message that so radically revolutionized the first century. What was that message, and what wasn't it? And then we're gonna ask the question, what was Jesus' mission? We're gonna rediscover what was the mission that Jesus is on in this world. And because, for those of us who follow him, which I know, by the way, that not everyone here today maybe is in that category. You might be here investigating Jesus. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we're asking the question, are we on that mission? Are we on the mission that Jesus is on? And, and, and what is that mission and what isn't that mission? What are we to be all about and what are we not to be all about? And then we said it's also gonna help us rediscover the method. What is Jesus's method? How does Jesus want to accomplish this mission? And how does he want to get his message out to the world? And of course, for those of us who follow Jesus, we're asking the question, what is our part in that? How do we participate in uh, what Jesus is trying to do in the world. So that's what we're doing in the book of Acts as we're looking at those things. So today, what I want to do is I actually want to continue our conversation we started last week where we've been thinking about the message. So again, the question that we're trying to answer as we're looking at the book of Acts is we're trying to answer the question, what was that original message? What was, what was the, the, the message that Christians were, were originally given by Jesus? What was the message that revolutionized the first century? What was the message that catalyzed an explosive movement that has lasted over 2,000 years and has found its way all the way to the other side of the world, that even to this day, people are proclaiming the name of Jesus. What was that message? What is the message that was so scandalous that in the book of Acts, it caused some of those early Christians to be arrested and some of them to even be killed because of their proclamation of this message? What was that? So we started talking about that last week, and uh, today, what I want to do is I want to continue that conversation. And to do that, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles, if you have them. We're going to go together to Acts chapter 2. Okay, so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to join me. You can open that up. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be going here together. Uh, by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible with you here this morning, that's no problem. There should be some Bibles under the chairs if you want to use one of those. Page 884 is where you're going to find Acts chapter 2. And then let me just say this. We say it every week, but I'm going to say it again. If you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to have one so you can take one. Just take one of those home with you, and you can read that. Okay, so Acts 2 is where we're going to go, 884. Now, as you're finding Acts chapter 2, before we start reading this, I think I need to do a little bit of a recap uh, from last week, because last week's conversation is actually pretty important because it, it, it leads into this week's conversation. So if you missed last week, by the way, I would encourage you to maybe go back and listen to that. I think it's very foundational. But let me just see if I can recap for you briefly what we said. Last week, we said this. We said, when you read the book of Acts, one of the distinct features that's going to stand out to you is the number of speeches 
and sermons that are outlined for us in the book of Acts. So I pointed this out. I said, when you go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that there are 10 major speeches. So the book of Acts covers about a 30-year period of time. And within that 30-year period of time, there's going to be 10 major speeches that are recorded. And by major, what I mean is that these are lengthier. Some of them are an entire chapter of the book of Acts. And these are sermons or speeches that are given. There's also going to be 30 minor speeches. And by minor, I mean they're summaries. They're summaries of sermons or summaries of messages or sermons that were provided. And then this is what blew me away. This blew me away. Is that uh, if you read the book of Acts, you're going to see that over a third of the book of Acts is actually made up of these speeches and these, these, these sermons that were given. Now, why is that important? Here's the reason that's important. It's because I believe that the book of Acts is trying to help us gain clarity on what was the message that the early church was proclaiming. Acts gives us over 40 examples of what that message was. Those messages, by the way, were given at different times, in different places, in different countries, by different people. And we said, when you actually take those, those different speeches and you start to compare and you contrast them, there are some differences, but what you're also gonna find is there is a remarkable amount of similarities. And it helps us understand what was the core of the message that they taught. And here's what we said last week. We said, when you compare all of them, you're going to find that they 100% have one common undisputed center. And what is the, the, the undisputed center of the message that the early church proclaimed, the message of the gospel? And this is what we said. We said the undisputed center of their message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. 100% of the speeches, what are you going to see? The core of their message is that Jesus died and that Jesus bodily, historically, and physically rose from the dead. And this is why we said this is important. If If you were with us last week, we say what that tells us is that the core of Christianity is actually not foundationally about a code of ethics. It's actually not, Christianity is actually not about the way you behave, not foundationally. We see that Christianity at its core, it's not even about what Jesus taught. And it's not even about the example that Jesus gave us by his lifestyle. Now, those things are important. Don't hear me wrong. But we said the core of the message of Christianity is about something that Jesus did. And that's he died on the cross and then he bodily, physically, and historically rose from the dead. That is the undisputed center of the message of Christianity. It's about something Jesus did, that he died and he rose. So that was last week. So this week, what I want to do is I want to follow up with another question. So if the core of the message of the gospel is that Jesus died and he rose, if that's the undisputed center, here's a follow-up question. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, so Jesus died and he rose. Let's say he did. So what? What does that mean? What does that change? Why does that matter to you? And why does that matter to me? What does the fact that Jesus died and rose say? What, is that, what does it communicate to us? And I believe that when you look at the speeches in Acts, you're going to find that they're telling us that, yes, Jesus died and rose, but they're also trying to help us see what that means, the relevancy of that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts 2 here in just a moment. And let me just tell you what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is going to tell us that the Holy Spirit has come which, by the way, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. I know there's all kinds of questions that swirl around the topic of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's going to come. The Bible's going to say that as a result of that, 
Peter, who's one of Jesus' disciples, gets up and he preaches the very first sermon ever. This is the first church sermon we ever see is right here in Acts chapter two. And what is his sermon all about? Well, I'm not gonna read the whole thing. In fact, if you're doing the reading plan, it's the first thing you're gonna read this week. It's there, there on the schedule. But um, I'll, get, I'll tell you what his sermon's all about. I'll just kind of just summarize it for you. You can probably guess. It's about the resurrection. That's what a sermon is, the undisputed center of the message. Repeatedly, Peter's gonna say, Jesus died and he rose. He died and he rose. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Over and over and over again, you're gonna see that. Okay, okay, we get it, but what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I actually think that there's one verse right here in this speech that does the best job, I think, of in a very concise way helping us see what that means. And it's actually the very end of his sermon. And so I just wanna show you, really, just one verse. Spend the rest of our time kind of looking at one verse here today. And it's Acts chapter two, verse 36. Look at it with me. This is how Peter ends his sermon. So his sermon's all about the resurrection. And here's how he concludes. It says, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. Okay, now pause for a minute. He says, let all of Israel. Peter, at this point, is talking to an entirely Jewish audience. But what we know is that what he's about to say is not just for the Jewish people. It's for everybody. But he says this, let all of Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Yes, this verse, this verse is so packed with such incredible and immense truth. What does the gospel mean? I think this verse is gonna show us that the gospel means at least three things for you and for me. It means at least three things. And what does it mean? Here's what I wanna show you. I think the gospel means, first off, it's gonna mean something personal. It's gonna mean something personally and deeply convicting. The gospel is, what does it mean that Jesus died and he rose? It means something very personal and something very deeply convicting. Number two, it means something outrageously good. Outrageously good. And then number three, it means something that is decisively exclusive. Decisively exclusive. Now, you might be thinking, what do you mean by all that? All right, well, let's go. Let's start right from the top. The gospel is gonna mean something personally and deeply convicting. I want you to think about this with me for a second. <clears throat> when we say, when the Bible says that Jesus was crucified, I want you to see and I want you to understand that that's saying much more than just how Jesus died or that Jesus died. It also is telling us something, I think, really about us. When we say that Jesus was crucified, it's actually saying something about humanity itself. It's actually saying something about our culpability, about our responsibility. In fact, I want you to notice what Peter says. Look at me, look with me again at verse 36. Look at how he says this. He says, this Jesus, whom you crucified, whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Messiah. Now that is a really, that is a really abrasive way to say that, isn't it? What does Peter say? He doesn't say this Jesus who was crucified. He doesn't say that. He says this Jesus who you crucified, who you crucified is what he says. That is a very abrasive and a very accusatory, that is very personal. He's saying you're responsible for this. And I want you to understand that this, when you look at the different sermons that are given in the book of Acts, this actually shows up repeatedly over and over. So I'll just give you an example. If you look at some of the speeches uh, earlier in Acts chapter two, here's what Peter says to them. 
He says, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see that again? He says, you. And I'm sorry, I keep pointing at this part of the, I'll go, <laughs> you, you guys, right? You, look, look at Acts 3. You killed the author of life. That is a, that is a strong statement. How about in Acts 4? He says, uh, it is by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, but God rose him from dead. Acts 5, you killed him by hanging him across. Acts 7, look what Stephen says. You stiff-necked people. And now you have betrayed and you've murdered Jesus. Now, man, you notice this. In a lot of these speeches, you can see that there is something very personal that they are saying to these people. They, this is a very accusatory statement. You are responsible. You are culpable for his death. Now, let me just say something about these verses, by the way. Um, these verses have actually been used throughout history in a very anti-Semitic way. And so a lot of people would look at these verses and they would say, see, the Bible's saying that it was the Jewish people who were responsible for crucifying Jesus. And so they were the ones, they were the ones who were responsible for killing the Messiah. And let me just say about that real fast, that on one hand, there's actually some legitimacy to that. There is, in this, in that it is true that there were real people in real history who were physically responsible for the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There were people who drove nails into his hands. There were people who schemed to put him on the cross. That is all true. That is historically accurate. However, what I want you to see is that that can't be the only meaning. That can't be. It can't just be that the Jewish people were guilty. That can't be it. And why, why is that? Well, let me, I could say so much on this, but let me just, let me just give you one, one thing to think about. If you go back to Acts 2, Notice what Peter says. Peter says, you crucified him. Now, Peter, he would have been fully aware of who he was talking to. He knew his audience. And who was his audience? Okay, so his audience, you can actually read it. It's, in the, it's actually in the text. And so if you, if you read it, you're going to find. The Jewish audience, or the audience that he's talking to, is over 3,000 Jewish men and women that he's talking to. And we know this, we know that the people he's talking to, he's talking to them 50 days after Jesus would have been crucified. Now we know that because this is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. That Jewish holiday, Penta means 50. And so it was 50 days after the Passover. The Passover is when Jesus would have been crucified. So this is 50 days after Jesus was crucified. Here's the other thing we know. We know that this audience was comprised of Jewish people who came from all over the world. So they traveled in from all kinds of places. What's the point? Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Peter would have known in giving this sermon that some of the people that were there that day weren't even present when Jesus was crucified. They weren't even there. And some of them who were there, they weren't even involved. They were just passively watching it happen. And yet Peter says to them, you're responsible. You crucified him. And how do they respond when he says that? Are the people like, no, we're not, we didn't do it. Is that what they say? No, no, look, look at how they respond. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, what are we gonna do about that? What, we, what should we do? That's what they said. They were cut to the, what does that mean when it says they were cut to the heart? Well, that expression, cut to the heart, in the original Greek language is actually a really strong expression. It means to feel the piercing weight of deep, sorrowful regret that's what it means. You know what it means? It means to feel something personally and deeply convicting. That's what it means. 
And you guys, I want you to understand that this right here is not just something that happened in Acts chapter two. This is something that happens when people hear the gospel. When people hear the message about how Jesus died on the cross and how he rose, the Bible's gonna tell us that it has an effect. And part of what it does to some people is it cuts you to the heart. Why is that? Jesus actually told us that this would happen. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 16. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, which is what happened in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came, he's going to convict the world of their sin. He's going to show them, he's going to convict them deeply that we are personally and that we are deeply convicted. We see our culpability, we see our responsibility, we see that it is our sin, it is our sin that has put him on the cross. You guys, what does it mean when we say that Jesus was, died on a cross? It's not, we're not just saying something about how he died, we're saying something about our responsibility. You know, we sing a song here sometimes at Grace, and some of you guys have heard it, it's an old hymn, I love it so much. It's the, it's the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Every time we sing that song, I just am always moved by the lyrics. And there's one, one particular lyric you guys might remember where it says this, it was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there. And what, what is it, when we sing that song, what are we saying? What, is, what are we as a community declaring when we sing that? Here's what we're saying. We're saying that we're responsible. We're saying what, what the scripture says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, and that all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. What does the cross tell us? The gospel tells us something. What does it mean? Here's what it tells us. It tells us the not-so-popular message that our sin, that our rebellion, that our resistance against God is more serious than we even know. It was very costly. But that's not all it tells us. That's not all it tells us, because the gospel, the gospel means something personally and deeply convicting, but here's the second thing. It means something outrageously good. The gospel means something outrageously good. Once you notice back in the verse, um, notice what Peter says. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him, and this is so awesome, he has made him the Lord and the Messiah. He has made him both Lord and Messiah. Now, I just gotta say, about these words, these two words that are used. It is so easy for us. It is so easy if you're reading the Bible to just read right past that and not even think twice about it, right? It's just so easy to be like, okay, yeah, Lord and Messiah. And I think for a lot of us, when we hear Lord and Messiah, or some of your translations say Lord and Christ, we tend to think that those are just, I don't know, those are just like interchangeable words that we can use to talk about Jesus. You know, sometimes we call him Jesus, sometimes we call him Lord, sometimes you guys call him Messiah, sometimes you call him Christ, sometimes you call him Jesus Christ, sometimes you call him Jesus Lord, Lord Jesus. I don't know, it's all interchangeable. But I want you to understand that these terms are not just like interchangeable, different words that we use to refer to Jesus. They actually are very deep, meaningful titles that have incredible weight and significance behind them. So what does it mean? when it says that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, the Messiah. What does that mean? Well, some of you have translations, and it says God has made this Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ. And this actually comes from a Greek word. The Greek word is this one right here. It's the word Christos. What does that mean? It means the appointed one. It means, or the anointed one. It means the Savior. And so a lot of you know this. The Jewish people had long anticipated that God was gonna send a Messiah. 
that God was gonna send someone who is gonna forgive the people of their sin, that God was gonna send someone who is gonna defeat their enemies and who's gonna bring them back into a peaceful relationship with God. That's what, that's what the whole Old Testament is predicting, that there's gonna be a Messiah who's going to come. So what does it mean, at least in the mind of the first century Christians, when they said Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead? That meant something. And what it meant was that God had made this Jesus the Messiah, that he is the savior, that he is the one who has come to forgive from sins. Over, over, over and over again in the New Testament, you're gonna see that the cross, the cross means salvation. The cross means forgiveness. The cross means acquittal. In fact, I want you just to consider with me, just notice in these speeches in the book of Acts, the kind of math that these, that these, that these speakers are, are starting to do. They're, they're saying Jesus died and Jesus rose, and so what does that mean? They're gonna say things like this. They're gonna say, because Jesus died and rose in Acts 3, we should repent then, and we should turn to God. Why? So that your sins will be wiped out. Why? Because this Jesus is the Messiah. That's why. It means something. When we say Jesus died and he rose, it, it means something. And part of what it means is it means that he's the Messiah. Look, look at Acts chapter four. He's gonna say salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven and earth in which a person can be saved. In Acts five, they're gonna say day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news. What was the good news? He's the Messiah because he died and he rose. That means that he's the Messiah, Acts 10, all the prophets testified, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins in his name. Acts 17, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. You guys, what does the cross tell us? What does the, what does the fact that Jesus was crucified communicate to us? Well, on one hand, it communicates to us our guilt. But on the other hand, it communicates to us God's great commitment and his love to us. All in one picture, all in one snapshot, what do you see? In one snapshot, listen, we both see our guilt and our worth. All of it is displayed on the cross. What do you see on the cross? On the cross, we see the message communicated to us that you and I are more messed up than we think we are. We're more messed up than we know. And at the very same time, you and I are more loved and accepted and forgiven than we could ever imagine. All of that is communicated to us. What is the cross communicating to us? That God did not send Jesus to condemn us of our sin, but he sent Jesus to free us and to liberate us from our sin. And so when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, we are declaring something that is outrageously good, outrageously good news. So can I just tell you guys why I think that this particular point is so relevant to our culture at this moment. Why I think it's so relevant. Now, I just gotta tell you real quick, this is just my opinion, okay? So take it or leave it, this is just my opinion. But from my perspective and in my perception, it seems to me that we live in a time right now as a society where we are probably more guilt adverse than maybe any other culture or many, any other people group, at least that I can think of, even in my own lifetime. I think today, as a society, we are more guilt-averse than, than any other people group I know. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. We, as a society, do not like the idea that we are guilty. We resist that. We don't like that. It is a very offensive thing to tell someone that they're wrong, 
It's, very, it's like the cardinal sin of our time. And so I think because of that, because that's the case, whenever we feel feelings of guilt or shame, we end up rejecting or resisting those feelings because in our minds, we think that no one should ever feel that way. So when we feel guilty or when we feel a sense of shame, what we tend to think is we tend to think, I shouldn't feel that way. And so what we do is we try to approve each other and we try to affirm each other and we try to say, no, 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 don't feel guilty. You're fine, you're fine, you're fine, just the way that you are. Don't let anyone tell you you're wrong. Don't let anyone tell you that you're guilty. Don't ever feel shame because if you feel those things, those are destructive emotions. Those are destructive feelings. You should never feel that way. And so let me just affirm you. Don't feel guilty. You're fine. You are great just the way that you are. Now, let me be the first one to say this, okay? I fully agree that guilt and shame can be and are very, very destructive feelings. They can be. I believe that guilt and shame, unresolved, can lead to serious psychological issues, incredible depression, debilitating anxiety. I absolutely agree with those things. Guilt and shame can weigh on us if it's not resolved. But I gotta tell you that I am convinced that, and I believe this with all my heart, that liberation from guilt and shame is not found in denying or belittling it. Because the truth is, and here's the truth, and I think we all know this, the guilt and the shame that we feel is real. There is real guilt. There is real shame. That, tr- that is true. And so for me just to say, it's okay, you're okay, we're fine, it's all right, that something inside of us knows that that's not right. And, and when we feel that guilt, when we feel that shame, what are, what are we supposed to do with that? Where are we supposed to take that? Where are we supposed to take deep remorse? Are we just supposed to, 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 to try to cover it up and pretend like everything is okay? And listen, here's what I want you to see. The gospel is gonna tell us something, and the gospel is going to tell us that the the guilt that we feel and the shame that we feel, that those things you can't pretend away because they continue to exist within us. And what the gospel is going to say is the gospel is gonna say that Jesus came not to deny those things and not to overlook those things, but he came to save us from those things. Here's what I believe, you guys, with all my heart. I believe, I believe this, I believe that the gospel has to first cut you before it ever begins to heal you. What do you see in the book of Acts? You see these people were cut to the heart. They were personally and deeply convicted. And it was then that they realized the good news that Jesus Christ had come to forgive them and liberate them. So can I just tell you, for some of you, you come in here today, some of you are coming in and you have bags of regret, loads of guilt shame from decisions that you made that you would do anything to go back and erase from your life. The ways that you have hurt people, the things that you have done, there's guilt and there's shame that is within you and you don't know what to do with it. And I just want you to know that if that's you, the gospel is declaring something that is outrageously good. And it's that Jesus forgives you. It's that he's the Messiah. You guys, here's the good news. It is that your creator, the only one who can actually condemn you, forgives you. He wants to forgive you. The cross says you're guilty, but it also tells you that he loves you. And you guys, that, that is outrageously good news. Outrageously good. And it's for you. 
And it's for you, and it's for me. It's freely given to anyone who receives it. But you guys, what I want you to understand is that's not the end of the gospel. Because the gospel means one more thing. It means something personally and deeply convicting. It means something outrageously good. But it also means something decisively exclusive. Decisively. Now listen, I understand the word exclusive in our culture is a super cringy word. I get it. We don't like that word. But I want to tell you that I actually really thought hard about it. And I deliberately chose it because I know it's a little bit prickly. And the reason is because I don't, I don't want us to miss how important this next truth is, okay? So here's what he's gonna say in Acts 3, or in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He's gonna say, God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Messiah, but also, notice, he's made him the Lord. This Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord. Now, what does that mean when it says Lord? Well, the word Lord's actually a really important word as well. It comes from the Greek word, which is uh, kurios. It means master, lord, or sir. It's actually a really generic term to refer to someone who is the rightful owner of something. Okay, so if, if you were the rightful owner of a house, you would be considered the lord of that house. If you were the, the, the rightful you know, owner of whatever, you would be called the, the lord of that thing. So what does it mean when the Bible says that God has made this Jesus lord? What does that mean? Here's, here's what it means. It means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares, it is God's way of declaring that Jesus has all authority over everything that he is the Lord, that he is the rightful owner over everything, including your life and mine, that he's the king. I love the way that one um, commentator put it. His name is Michael F. Bird. He said it this way. He said, to profess that Jesus is Lord is to make no empty claim. It is the singular, most important confession that a person can make about who Jesus is and about the relationship to him. To identify Jesus as Lord is to state that God the Father has appointed the crucified and risen man, Jesus of Nazareth, now catch this, as the master and the commander of the cosmos. To acknowledge that Jesus is Lord means that one recognizes Jesus is the ultimate authority over all things. The son at the center of the theological universe of the New Testament is this, Jesus reigns, Jesus reigns. So, so what, what is it telling us? We see, I think it's important because I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can think, we can, we can look at Jesus and say, yeah, he's the Messiah, but we can miss out on the reality that he's also the Lord, that yes, he is the forgiver of our sins, but he's also the rightful leader of our lives, that he's the king, that he's the king. Dallas Willard, I'll give you one more quote. I thought this was helpful. Dallas Willard said it this way. He said, to truly engage in the spiritual life, we have to get past a view of atonement in which all that matters in salvation is Jesus taking the punishment for our sins. That's a dense sentence. So let me explain what he just said. Here's what he just said. He said that we need to get past the idea that Jesus is only our Messiah. So then he goes on. The problem with such a reductionistic view is that once salvation is taken care of and heaven after death is assured, that's the end of it period. It's all done for us, and it's all over, and it's done with. So what are we going to do now? What about discipleship? What about following Jesus? It's not necessary. It's not required. He goes on, saved in the reductionistic view means that my sins are forgiven. Let me assure you, lest you misunderstand me, it definitely means that for sure. But remember that the basic act of salvation from God's point of view is the impartation of life. It is regeneration, and that life imparted is resurrection life, an ongoing developing reality. You see what he's saying? He's saying when we reduce Jesus 
simply to being the forgiver of my sins and my ticket to heaven. He says, we've actually fallen short in our gospel because the gospel also tells us that Jesus rose to give us new life and that he, invite, and he wants us to, to make him the king of our life, that Jesus has authority over every aspect, over every avenue, over every, over, over every compartment of my life. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. And he's a good king because unlike the kings that we know of and the leaders that we know of who lord it over us, Jesus actually chose to die for us, which means that he is one who wants to serve us. But it means that he's the king. It means that he is the king. You see, when we declare that Jesus is Lord, when we say this, we are actually making a statement of, of, of decided exclusivity. We are saying that Jesus is the only one, the only Messiah. He's the only one who can forgive us of our sins. We're also saying that he's the only Lord, that he is the only one who has the exclusive rights to lead and guide my life, to define and direct me. I want you to notice, once again, if you look at these speeches, I want you to notice what the resurrection meant to these, to these guys who are proclaiming it. So in Acts 2, he's going to say, David was a prophet. He's talking about King David in the Old Testament. And he says, but he knew that God had predicted that he was going to send someone to come on his throne. What's that saying? It's predicting that there would be a king. There'd be a king who would come. He predicted the resurrection of the Messiah. God raised Jesus to life, and he exalted him to the right hand. Do you see the math he's doing? What did the resurrection mean? It meant that Jesus is the king. That's what it meant. How about this one? Acts 3. Moses said, he's going all the way back to Moses. Moses said that God's going to raise up a prophet like you from your own people. When he comes, you have to listen to everything he tells you. Why? He's the Lord. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their own people. You guys, that is a, a radical statement of exclusivity. How about this one? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name in heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But what is that saying? Something very exclusive, decisively exclusive, that Jesus is the way, that his name is the only name to call to be saved. Acts 5, God exalted him in his right hand as leader and as savior. Acts 10, he commanded us to preach the gospel to, uh, to the people, testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. You can see over and over again what they're saying is, yes, Jesus is Messiah, he is also, he is also the Lord. And so I think you guys can start to see, if you can get your mind around this, you can see that this message, the message of the gospel is both convicting and encouraging and threatening and life-giving all at the same time. This is why I believe, and we're gonna see this in a couple of weeks, why this message, when it is preached, elicits so many different responses from so many different people. You're gonna see in the book of Acts, some people hear this message, this message that is personally and deeply convicting, that's outrageously good for those who receive it, but that's decisively exclusive. You're gonna see some people, they choose to repent and they choose to be baptized and surrender their life to Jesus. That's what happens in Acts 2. You're gonna see other people, they hear it and they laugh at it and they scoff at them and they dismiss it as just being some outrageous claim. Some people hear it and they just get angry and they try to dismiss the, those who are presenting the message and some of them, they even tried to kill them as a result of it. And why is it? It's because this message is one that is personally and deeply convicting. It is outrageously good news if you're willing to receive it, but it's also decisively exclusive. So what do you do with a message like this? Well, let me just end with two conclusions and then we'll be done. Conclusion number one is this. Followers of Jesus... And again, I know not everyone here today is a follower of Christ, but for those of us who do follow Jesus, 
We need to know and we need to preach this gospel. We need to know this and we need to preach this. One of the things that Acts is gonna show us is that for whatever reason, and I still to this day cannot figure out why God did it this way, but he's God. God decided that the way in which he wanted to bring men and women to himself was through the proclamation of this message. That God wants to use us, those of us who follow him, to proclaim this message to others, that that is the chosen way, the chosen means by which God wants to save people. I don't know why he decided to do, that, do it that way, but he did, he did. And what that means is it means that we need to know this message and we need to be able to preach this message. Now, let me just give you some clarity. I know when I say the word preach, sometimes it's a little unhelpful because I think for some of us, when we think of preach, you, we probably tend to think about what I'm doing right now, right? I'm preaching a sermon. And so when you say, I need to preach this, do you mean I need to do what you're doing? And of course, that's not what I mean. The word preach, uh, as it's used in the book of Acts, simply means to proclaim. It means to herald. It means to speak it. It means to say it. And here's my point. My point is this. I believe every single follower of Jesus needs to be able to speak this message, needs to be able to explain this message, needs to be able to say this. And how do you do that? Well, I actually think that, you know, Peter, the very same Peter who's preaching in Acts 2, He's gonna say this in 1 Peter chapter three. He's gonna say, in your hearts, revere, now notice his language, Christ as Lord. You see that? He says, revere Christ as Lord. How do you revere Christ as Lord? He says, well, what this means is that you always need to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You see what he's saying? If you declare Christ as Lord, if you are a follower of Jesus and you declare him as Christ and Lord, he says you need to be ready to declare this message. You need to be ready to preach this gospel. And you do that in two ways. You can see it in this passage. We talked about this last week. We do it with our lips and we do it with our lives. We do it with our lips and we do it with our lives. With our lips, look what he says. You have to be ready to give an answer and to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, I think all of us know this. If you're really passionate about something, isn't it true that when someone asks you about the thing that you're passionate about, you have an answer, you have a reason, you do, right? Like some of you guys are like really, really passionate about the car that you drive. And, and my guess is if someone came up to you and said, why do you drive that kind of car? You would have an answer. You would have, if someone's like, oh man, you drive a Ford. Why do you drive a Ford? You'd be like, well, I'm a Ford man, you know, American, that's why. And you would have a... I don't know why, you'd have a reason, right? Some of you, if I said, you drive a Tesla, you have an electric car, why? why? You'd say, well, gas prices. You have a reason, you have an answer. If I asked, you know, why do you drive a pickup truck? I, don't know. I like to pick stuff up. I, I don't know, I, whatever. You have a reason, you, ha you have an answer. Some of you are really passionate about the store that you shop at. And so if I asked you, if someone asked you for the reason, why do you prefer this store over that store? Why do you like Aldi over Bueller's? Or why do you like Bueller's over Aldi? Or why do you like Target more than Walmart? Which no one needs to ask that question because we all know. <laughs> right, if, you, if I said that to you, you have a reason. You have an answer. The value, the price, the selection, the quality. You have an answer. You have a reason. Some of you guys, if I asked you, why did you draft those players in your fantasy football league? Oh my gosh, you have an answer. You have spreadsheets and algorithms of why you chose. You have a reason. If I asked you why you vote, the way you vote, you have a reason, you have an answer. 
follower of Jesus, if someone asks you why you worship Christ, if someone asks you why your life looks different, if someone asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, do you have an answer? We better have an answer. We better be able to preach this message, to proclaim it with our lips, but not just our lips, we proclaim it with our lives. Notice what he says. When someone asks you, be prepared when someone asks you, do it with gentleness and respect. Make sure that they can see your good behavior. What is all that saying? This is all implying relationship and lifestyle. That's what it's saying. In other words, what he's saying is this. You know how we preach? We preach with our lives. Our lives communicate a message. And when our lives and our lips, when those things don't align, it creates confusion. And so how do we preach? We preach with, and here's the question for those of us who follow Jesus. What message is your life proclaiming? What is your life saying is the hope of the world? What's your social media saying? What, what message is being propagated from, what, what would your neighbors say is the message that's coming out of your life? What would your classmates say? We preach with our lips and we preach with our lives. Here's the last one, and with this, I'll invite the band to come up. Conclusion number two. You can call on his name today and be saved. You can call on him today. And you can, listen, I don't know why you're here. I don't know. I don't know if you're here because you're exploring Christianity, if you're looking for answers. I don't know if you're a person who used to be part of a church and then you stopped because of something that happened. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God. Maybe, you, maybe you're even questioning whether or not you believe in him. But maybe for some of you who are here today, as I've been going through this message and I've been talking, you have been cut to the heart. You have been cut to the heart. Now, I understand for some of you, maybe for some of you, you're like, I, honestly, I don't really know what you've been talking about most of the time today. I kind of tuned you out. The chicken thing was funny at the beginning, but after that, I stopped paying attention. And I get it. That happens sometimes. That's fine. But for some of you, you've been totally locked in. And you've been cut to the heart. And when I say that you are personally and deeply responsible, you feel that. And when I say there's outrageously good news that's available for you, you want that. And when I say that there's something that's decisively exclusive, you understand that. And can I just explain to you what that is? Okay, it's not because I'm doing anything. It's not because of my rhetorical ability. Here's what it is. It's because of what God promised. And what God promised is that when this message is proclaimed, that the Holy Spirit will convict. And some of you are feeling that right now. And let me just tell you, that's the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit of God. He is trying to get your attention. And what I want you to know is you might be saying, what am I supposed to do with that? What do I do with that? Here's what I would tell you to do. Acts 2. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call on his name. Just call on it. You're like, what does that mean? Well, you know what it means to call on somebody, right? I'm not asking you, do you know his name? I'm not asking you, have you said his name? Have you called on it? Have you said, Jesus, I, I need you. Jesus, it's not just that you're the Messiah, you're my Messiah. I'm, I'm calling on you. I need you to take my guilt, my shame, my sin. You're my Lord. I want to make you the one who guides and leads my life. You can call on his name today, and you can be saved. That's for you. That message is for you. There's no magical formula. You don't have to go through a seance. There's not a, all you got to do is just call on his name.
between your heart and his heart. Just say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. I wanna invite you in. I wanna stop resisting you and I wanna start following you. And he'll start there. Listen, we care so much about this that if you still have lingering questions, can I just encourage you, don't let this conversation stop here. Talk with the person you came with. Talk to someone on our team. Come find me afterwards. There's nothing that we'd love more than to talk to you about this. But now, as we turn to God in prayer, I just wanna invite us that these songs that we sing, that as we sing them together, that this would be our way collectively as a church and as a community, calling together once again on the name of Jesus. Let's do it. Father, I wanna say thank you for your word. I wanna say thank you for the truth. Lord, that you died for us. And the crucifixion tells us way more just than how you died. It tells us something pretty deeply convicting about us, that it's our sin that puts you there. But it also tells us something about your incredible love for us, your deep commitment to us, how far you would come to save us, that you are the Messiah. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the only one that can take away our shame. You're the only one who can resolve our guilt. You're the only one who can carry our, our, the weight of our sin and then give us your righteousness that we can live in a right relationship with you. No one else can do that. And so we turn to you as the forgiver of our sins. But we also declare you the Lord. You're the king. You're the one, the only one who has the rightful authority to guide and lead our lives. Help us to surrender to you. Surrender over and over again every aspect, every part of our lives to you because you are the king and you're a good king who loves us. We call on your name. We call on your name together. In these moments, we call on your name that you are both Messiah and you are the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name.